Eileen Deville is awesome. <laughs> she. <laughs> April 17th. Um. Caden is still doing well. Yeah, that's a good update. What? I don't know. I feel. He's still tired. He's still tired. He's just normal sick, though. I still haven't been doing my usual, like, keeping up with all the COVID news because Hmm. there's just a lot of household stuff to catch up on after the hospital visit this week. Mm -hmm. But there are a couple things I wanted to talk about. One is um, this, I don't know, Twitter is an amazing, weird place. Hmm. So many doctors are on Twitter. Mm-hmm. follow a lot of doctors on Twitter and I just keep follow every emergency doctor or intensivist I see on Twitter I just follow them mm-hmm. and they're having medical discussions mm-hmm. on Twitter mm-hmm. and one of the things about COVID-19 is that nobody knows how to treat it mm-hmm. and they keep finding new things that it does like two months ago we knew it was a lung disease mm-hmm. And then we found out it was a heart disease. And then we found out it was a kidney disease. Mm-hmm. And there's just all these new aspects to it that people keep discovering. Mm-hmm. And there was some some really well-known inter- intervist? What intensivist? Do we s- intensivist, that's the uh-huh. word. Uh, who made the big statement that we're making, we're putting, I think this was something people were talking about before, the use of ventilators too early. Yeah, so this is a big thing now. Yeah. Is it so ventilators, I mean, obviously everybody's been talking about ventilators, but the thing is, if, you, if somebody gets to the point of being ventilated, there's like somewhere around a 90% chance that they're going to die. Mm-hmm. Like the ventilator is not doing very much for these people. And could be damaging and their lungs. And could be damaging their lungs yeah. is the hypothesis of some. Yeah. And part of it is if you, the... What I've been reading from doctors is that basically there are these tenets of emergency medicine of when to intubate somebody and it doesn't apply here. You have to like reframe how you're thinking and how people are starting to treat now is instead of intubating early, which like I feel like as soon as a few weeks ago was what people were saying, like intubate yeah. early before it's an emergency when yeah. you can PPE properly and like, yeah. and now it's like instead of that delay intubation as long as humanly possible because the vent could hurt somebody, you you prone them, you put them mm-hmm. on their tummy, yeah, um, or recline them maybe no, you no, want to get the weight, yeah, you prone them, but there. Are, there was another position that somebody said. Trandellenberg? I don't know. No. I have no idea what that word is. Mm-hmm. But you want the lungs to be able to fill on their own. Fill and expand. And one hospital was using like massage beds for pregnant women that have like cutouts mm-hmm. in them to like leave room for the chest to expand. And so now doctors are trying to So you could prone. get th- What about iron lungs? You could use iron lungs. I don't think we have those anymore. Because hmm. <laughs> well that would do that, right? Like you yeah. would draw air into yeah. the lungs without f- pushing. I think the damage happens when you push air pushing. in, right? Yeah. You're, you're over. Whereas if you just pull on the outside of the body, it would only help open everything up. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. 
So I'm not a doctor. I in no way understand the details of what they're talking about. And I get lost on a lot of these threads. But the gist of it is, is like the doctors are just figuring this out as they go. And that's a lot of the frustration, I think, in the helplessness that people are feeling is because they don't know how to treat it. Yeah. And this guy. So the guy who made the big, like, I don't know. The well-known guy, if I should have learned his name, mm-hmm. he was the guy <laughs> who came up about. with the idea to prone people, first of all, for for lung. If you have someone who had difficulty breathing, this is in the 80s, he said you should get them mm. on their stomach. He, and he was ridiculed. And then a couple of years, and then, I don't know, five years later, everyone's doing it, of course, right? Like, is a great example of how, you know. It takes time it to takes adjust to new ideas. Yeah. <laughs> and so now he's saying his... Main argument seems to be that uh, vents are good in normal ARDS. I forget what that stands for. But when you have lungs that get stiff because of disease, if they get stiff and less stretchy, then you need to inflate with greater pressures. And that's when you want, you need a vent and it helps. And that's basically what the standard treatment protocols kind of Mm-hmm. Are, are are assuming is happening in the body but he's saying that's not that's definitely not all cases at least that's not what's happening with this yeah and by force there's still m- many people's lungs are still stretchy and if you put extra pressure on that you'll just damage them mm-hmm. and so the pushback on him seems to be that well there's no evidence yeah. and it i but just there's no evidence for anything and it's just it drives me crazy when people say that because like you have to start somewhere like you have to come he's there they use this they say well it's just a theory right now well of course that's how it has to start but if you see something it's like in science it's like you're you the person with the current using the current standard treatment plan there's a theory there and mm-hmm. this person has an alternate theory about what is going on in the body, essentially, right? What is the mechanism by which mm-hmm. you, you're helping with a with mm-hmm. a vent or what's happening in the body with the disease, and yeah. and it's like but you have to be able be willing to look for cases where your theory looks like it's wrong. And sure, it but I don't think a lot of people are proning now. Like no, not the, the prone thing. Not th- it's not about the proning thing. But about any, like, people are adjusting their treatment for COVID-19, like, all the time. Yeah, yeah, I feel yeah. like that is not a... The the person who is pushing, there, I'm just saying in the article I read, mm-hmm. it seemed like, it I, just is, is surprising. There's going to be tons of debate on anything of because cor- there's so little evidence. Everything's going to have massive debate. Of course, I there should be think debate. That's fair. It just I I always get I always am surprised by the argument when people say there's not evidence. Because you have to develop the evidence. You start from a theory and then you develop the evidence based on the theory. You test the theory to get evidence, and it just it's just I I feel like I'm experiencing that in the back injury thing and the in the pressure injury research that we do preventing bed sores it's like everyone says there's not evidence for this there's not evidence for this but there's good theories and there's good evidence that shows that existing theories don't make sense Mm -hmm. the existing way we treat things doesn't work and there's good reasons to demonstrate why those aren't working Mm -hmm. and yet people are 
kind of are resistant to wanting to change from the existing ways of doing things because there hasn't been the randomized control trial on the new theory yet. Yes. But I can tell this is a personal beef of yours. It just feels like it's it's just, peop- I don't know, maybe I have a poor understanding of what science is, but it feels like the philosophy of science is that this is the approach you have to take. Mm-hmm. In the absence of evidence, you have to rely on the theory, and then you have to keep testing. And any evidence you get, and by evidence I don't mean the randomized controlled trial evidence, every little bit of things you learn from every patient has to, you have to reconcile. Does it make more sense that it's this way? Okay, but you have to make... Okay, that's where you have to be very careful. Yeah. It's gathering evidence tiny bit by tiny bit by tiny bit because that's when you get like skewed samples. People, so there was some big Santa Clara study that mm-hmm. came out today maybe or observational study mm-hmm. of COVID in Santa Clara mm-hmm. and they have, they reported a really big um, infection a really small infection fatality rate, Mm -hmm. which would imply that there's a lot of people infected that we don't know about. And then if you apply that number to (laughs) New York, Mm -hmm. if you use that infection fatality rate with the number of deaths that New York had, in Mm -hmm. order for that to be true, their population, they'd have to have 2 million more people in the city and everyone would have to be infected. Right, so... It's like, it's theoretically impossible for that sure. information from Santa Clara So that doesn't reconc- to reconcile. Yeah, sure. But like I'm saying, when you just kind of gather piece by piece, you can get misled Yeah. also by the evidence. But it's about, no, it's about being, so if we, if we put out a ball, like if you took a ball and you drop and you let it go and any one time out of every time you've done it in your life it didn't fall to the ground Mm -hmm. you would have to seriously reconsider what's going on here right are you in an airplane are you like there's something going on that we don't understand right now yeah every single case where it doesn't fit your model Mm -hmm. you have to take very seriously Mm -hmm. and like consider where is are we at a boundary case where the existing theory breaks down like you know like near the speed of light things don't uh, f equals ma no longer holds or think mm-hmm. you know those kinds of things happen in these weird edge cases or but I- I- if you think there's a theory that's not matching like any little piece of evidence has to be taken seriously in science i think that's one of the right. basic you know you can't just ignore the one weird case and you know you mm-hmm. c- you can say that that might have been an outlier let's see if it happens again but okay yeah, that's all all right Moving on. Hmm. Let's talk. Can we talk about Eileen Davila and how sh- awesome she is? Sure. I mean, you can talk about. You want to come back to that? What, what was your okay, thing? You go were for it. Eileen Davila is awesome. <laughs> she <laughs> did a press conference. So the b- the issue is that the tracking system in Ontario for for people with COVID is terrible. It's like 15 years old apparently, and doesn't actually. The way I I don't actually understand this at all, what's wrong with it, but it doesn't allow you to, for instance, say how many people from nursing homes were found to have, were found to be positive for COVID today, or how many people died in a nursing home from uh, from COVID today. Like, there's just you can't 
get that that information is not stored in the database. I guess it's not read in and it's not able to you're not able to run queries on it in that way. And so she was asked in a in a news conference a few days ago now, what are the numbers of people in nursing homes in Toronto that are that this is affecting? What is the proportion? And she said, Well, our system doesn't let us do that. And in the and in the media thing she just sort of left it at that, but she went away and the next day I think in her in her press conference, she said that that really bothered her that she had to say that because it clearly is something we need to know. This is the most vulnerable part of the population. And so she got her team together and said, I know that the current system doesn't allow us to do this, but and I know we're stretched thin, but we have to find a way to do this. We have to find a way to track this. How did they do it so fast? Because they're awesome. It was like she's one day. She's awesome. So then she got, I don't know, they did it and and so yeah, it's now they now live. They, bu they built a new system in a day i think it's been a little like i think someone behind the scenes at the city of toronto has been working on it mm -hmm. like has been working on a better system for a while and i think this just pushed them to implement it and uh and so now toronto will have much better data they'll be able and i think the other thing that was lacking in ontario or is lacking in ontario is is the inability to trace so you can't actually test contacts like you you somehow they strip out information like that from the patient like their data goes into the system if they come out positive they no longer know who that who the contacts of that person were like it's right. it's kind of mind-boggling how poorly set up yeah. this was but and how ineffective it is for what we want now but they couldn't like actually go and then say okay this person tested positive we need to notify all of their contacts mm -hmm. that's just not possible <laughs> with our ontario system which is why right. we're not doing the test and trace right. like that what the who you know world health organization is pushing has been pushing forever as one of their main tenets of how you do this um and that's why Ontario is not doing so well in this fight. But in uh, in, tr in Toronto now, thanks to Eileen Davila, who just didn't just throw up her hands like everybody else seems to be doing and say, "Well, the system doesn't let us do it." They like developed a new system, and now I wonder if it w would be expandable to the province. Well, now Canada's. I think Canada's already talking about taking a federal because. Everyone just for everybody, because everyone should be on the same. We should system. just have a system. Yeah. We should have one system that you read everything into. Yeah. Well, I mean, I hope they didn't build it in a day. I don't think <laughs> that would. I there I read a little bit more about it where the scale up. it sounded like people at the city of Toronto would like kind of rec like people in Toronto public health mm -hmm. and the offices recognized that there were some serious IFAS was not cutting it drawbacks and they were talking with Whereas computer the province people. Was just cool with it. I guess I don't know. Maybe other people are working on it elsewhere too, but anyways, that was, I'm proud, I was really, really impressed by that story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, everyone loves Eileen Davila. Yeah. And her scarves. And her scarves. All right. I want to talk about the impact of COVID-19 on mm -hmm. the disability community. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, that big, heavy... I mean, it's not I don't, I didn't have time to do tons and tons of research, but I was just thinking about, like, I mean, this was obviously, I wanted to talk about this because of our own, because Caden is disabled, we're, we're kind of part of the disability community, and so I've been mm -hmm. seeing and hearing a lot about it, mm -hmm. and then the 
outbreak at participation house in Markham, which was a home for a long-term care home for disabled adults that had an outbreak and a bunch of their staff walked off the job because I think they didn't have proper PPE and mm-hmm. and then Jane Philpot came to the rescue because mm-hmm. that was her riding and she came in and connected them with her hospital mm-hmm. where she had been where she used to work and is now volunteering and so now Markham Stouffville Hospital is helping mm-hmm. provide people and PPE and stuff to and I think almost everyone there has COVID-19 now or something. Mm-hmm. It just spread everywhere. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where the... It's tragic. That's the story about... There was... I think CP24 had the story about the woman who... The, the I think she was like in, I'm guessing, 20s. And, and so she was... Her p- family took her out when they heard something was happening at Participation House. Her family took her All out. Right. They have another child, I think a 10 or 12-year-old son... And so the family decided there's a chance. So at the time, she wasn't pot like there was she wasn't so showing any symptoms, right? The 20 year old woman wasn't showing any symptoms. They brought her home, but they said, "Well, there's a really good chance she might have it. So let's split up the house." And the father and the son went like in the basement, and the mom and the daughter were upstairs, and they were trying to kind of isolate. And then she, so the daughter started showing symptoms, and then the mom started showing symptoms to the point where she couldn't take care of her daughter anymore. They were struggling because they didn't know how to even like get them out of, get her out of the house to go to a hospital without infecting, you know, her husband and how the mother could go get tested, how the daughter could have been tested when she was first having symptoms. And I think Jane Philpott stepped in there as well and got somehow got, swabs to them so that they could get swabbed at home so that at least they knew they were positive but at the end of the day what happened was because the mom got sick they ended up having to put the daughter into the hospital and she didn't understand why she was you know couldn't without without any family member there with her like she was scared and afraid and like the worst possible way of the worst possible situation mm-hmm. you can imagine and and um yeah it 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 could have i feel like this is the exact case that w- we are afraid of like if caden yeah. if one of us gets it and uh, who's going to take care of caden like he's just going to mm-hmm. have to go to a hospital and it, what you need is to be treat what unpaid caregivers need is to be treated like healthcare workers under this in, in a scenario like this you need mm-hmm. protect okay okay protect equipment we're getting ahead of it here i just oh sorry i just want to outline like three sorry areas so so i was just thinking about this i feel like you can the ways in which disabled people are impacted in a greater way by this pandemic can kind of be broken into three areas sure so first is just a baseline loss of services that they depend on right two is the ways in which they require extra protection for being vulnerable that are hard to come by. Yeah. And the third is like, if they get sick, how are they treated and how are they triaged? And so when it comes to baseline loss of services, I mean, so many (laughs) disabled people rely on so many 
therapies and groups and things that have just vanished and then are now home and not at school. And so the amount of caregiving that the families have to do now shoots shoots way, way, way up. And it's hard on the disabled person. It's hard on the people taking care of them. And so just at baseline, it's much more difficult. And it's not too much for us because it's kind of like that when kids are under four anyways, it's all on you mostly anyways. But but it's like um, but some of it, what you're saying is some of it is the system is kind of forcing it on you because these services disappear for a while while the pandemic is happening. But then also some people choose to disassociate from like like we have extra care coming during the week that we've said we don't want those nurses coming for now right and so that's well i'm just saying everybody's losing services but disabled people tend to have more services and be more dependent on them yeah and so everybody's not in school yeah but disabled kids are not in school and also missing their occupational therapy and also missing their physiotherapy yeah. and also missing their feeding therapy and also right like yeah, yeah. all these things that they yeah. need for their physical health too yeah. what i'm saying is that's <laughs> so that's one side and then the other side is the families are voluntarily taking on more of the care to protect because the system the home care system. So that's category two. So that's oh, okay, under sorry. protecting. No, no, we can go there. Okay. So then how do we protect these vulnerable people? Yeah. So like you said, so people, so this is a big topic of discussion in our groups because a lot of people receive nursing care or PSW care yeah. to help care for their kids. So that's an OT and PT and all these people coming into the home. Like you can have, we had, <clears throat> 10 people coming in our home every week before COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And and some people have more than that, right? You're not even counting the night nurses. I am. Oh, you're okay. Counting night nurses, 10 people. <coughs> okay. So, right. so, and Caden is, I'm sure, more vulnerable than their average kid, but he doesn't have any specific vulnerabilities. Like, he doesn't have... Um, any immunosuppression, for instance, yeah. which would be very frightening, or heart issues or lung issues, like if y- and and a lot of people do, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so, if you have any of those specific risk factors, having ten people come through your house mm-hmm. in a week is terrifying. Mm-hmm. And so, people are trying to find ways to to social distance, to lock down, to have fewer people come through their house, and and the flexibility from the government and the communication from nursing agencies has been really terrible. Mm -hmm. So there's a program called family managed care Mm -hmm. that allows families to not go through an agency for home care nurses and PSWs, but to hire their own people Mm -hmm. and the government will pay them and and you can decide who you hire. Mm -hmm. Um, But you're not allowed to hire your own family members. Yeah. And so people are saying, well, for COVID-19, it would make a heck of a lot of sense now and protect a lot of people if we could hire our own family members yeah. who are out of work, who are in our bubble. Yeah. Right. And but no, that's not allowed. Yeah. And so it's like you just it would cost the government 
zero dollars to do that <laughs> right yeah no cost to that whatsoever yeah and but it's not something that they're willing to do yeah. to protect people yeah. there's no ppe for definitely for home for unofficial unpaid caregivers there's barely ppe yeah. for psws yeah well this our nursing agency said our nurses would not wear PPE unless someone was symptomatic. Yeah. Um, they, um, the second, so th I think the first healthcare worker in Ontario to die was a personal support worker, right? And now there's been a second. The first one, though, didn't get it, didn't get it at work, they think. The second healthcare worker to die was a PSW who got it at work for sure the, the union is saying mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's crazy that the lack yeah. of ppe and it just yeah it just there's just such this like resources in the hospital is like unlimited okay here's a crazy thing that you may not believe if you haven't spent time in hospitals mm -hmm. but when we go to the hospital and we spend like one night there or we spend <laughs> five hours there the nurses are like, load up on supplies on your way out because we have to throw all of these disposable supplies out when a you leave. Anything that's in the room. Drawers full of yeah. supplies that we didn't touch. But if it was in the room. Just gets thrown out. Yeah. Like and I'm then restocked for the next patient. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And then home care, long-term care, like anything outside of the hospital. Yeah is just like on this shoestring budget the hospital employees are paid more than home care and facility workers and it's just this huge imbalance this huge it's just society's valuing of acute care over like yeah. chronic and preventative stuff yeah. and we were saying too for Caden like I mean, this is outside of COVID-19, but just this whole, like, healthcare has to be in a hospital, and it's so hard to get it at home. Like, if we, so we went to the hospital with Caden. We went to the emergency room. There was at least 20 people involved with Caden in the emergency room. We went up to a private isolation mm -hmm. intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. Nurses, fellows, RTs, mm -hmm. a hospital ventilator, I don't even know how many thousands of dollars a day that well, costs. You can look it up based on what the, in the U.S. when you have a yeah. comparable right. case, what they charge. Basically, his visit to the hospital was probably, aside from having a surgery, is like the most expensive mm -hmm. hospital visit you could possibly have. Yeah. He was barely sick. If we could have <laughs> had a doctor yeah. come Just and be like, you know, listen to his lungs and take the swabs for the tests and you know and then call us in the morning yeah like i mean even a nurse come and hook up iv it, fluids like yeah for overnight like we have nurses that already been, we, we have, have nurses. nurses already they're already here like you just need to send the right things with them yeah. like it just would have been like you could have the nurse on the phone with a doctor describing what they're seeing doing uh, like anyways, collecting samples you we're could getting way off no off it's not track, off topic it's obvious it's so obvious that that's what where it needs to go yeah it's so obvious that that's where it needs to go but if this people is are be so resistant to this are they who is just the system
the government system like the I mean, lens don't, don't I, want to move oh that I, reminds me of something else yeah. on the protecting front yeah so when Caden came down with symptoms and we didn't know if he had COVID-19 mm-hmm. we told our nursing agency and that got communicated to our Lynn coordinator which w- I was impressed with mm-hmm. I didn't expect that to happen mm-hmm. and then she called us and and you know was asking a bunch of questions and offered us some ppe mm-hmm. which was great and i wasn't expecting but the ppe on offer were surgical masks for caden mm-hmm. that we were that the idea was we would put them around his trach mm-hmm. which a they don't fit there and B, he's three, so he's going to rip them off. Yeah, good luck. And then we were supposed to use one mask for a week. Yeah. And I just kind of chuckled and said, well, we'll take what you got. Send them our way. You don't but think that's like a cross-infection? Like, you don't think you're making it worse by, like, having this thing that's contaminated for a week that a kid's going to touch? Oh, and it like would much. It would be much worse. This dirty because thing there's hanging nowhere on their neck. Like Caden is going to respect the rules of the yeah. mask. Yeah. <laughs> like no, you're just collecting you're just virus on this one sponge in a virus. sponge that every time you pick him up, he's going to smash into your face. And yeah. like it, it doesn't no, make it. But that's like the that's the system that's there. Yeah. No, it's I think this I think this is so clear cut to me. Like I, I disagree that people are resistant to change. I think they just don't know how to fix it. And they need very not clear. The, not necessarily people, but I'm saying the systems, like people yeah. saying we need to protect our kids. Can we please hire our family members with this money that we already have to pay for our child's care? Yeah, but they're and talking they to the wrong people. No. no, but they're talking to the wrong people. You can't tell. Here's the problem with getting a system to change. You can't tell. You can't expect the person you talk to on the phone, you call whatever family managed care person that is that person has no power they're just trying to get through their day they're probably overwhelmed they don't care they don't it's not their job to make changes to the system you have to find the people but that's my point like no but in any system in any system i think you have to get to the top you have to find people that actually have the power to make the change and convince them and that that's what I think uh, what I think this is so clear cut that uh, like a l- we need to write a letter to the editor of, of the Globe and Mail and and see yeah. it and get it get the story. I think anyone who looks at this would be like, yeah, that's ridiculous. That's pretty ridiculous. And we already that. have a f- someone we know who is in um, was in the had an article in the Toronto Star as an anonymous person because they're they found out that. I don't know who, but somebody was trying to like poach their home care nurses for long-term care facilities. So the other thing is nursing agencies won't tell families if their nurses work somewhere else. Yeah. Like in hospitals right away when this happened, you had, they were told nurses can't switch institutions right away. Long-term care that didn't happen. Home care that didn't happen. Home care that doesn't happen. You don't, you can't even know. I mean, yeah, they won't even. So there's just, there's all these vulnerable people out there and the systems are not nimble or able to do what they need to do to protect them and then you just have these families desperate and screaming (laughs) at the system and people are going to the media and people are shouting at facebook and yelling into their mics on podcasts and doing what they can do but it's it's a very sticky situation 
but I'm gl- I mean the good thing is we're flattening the curve and so there's not so much community spread. Yeah. To be worried about anymore, but Yeah. It's it's still out there. Yeah. And then yeah, the last thing people are worried about is triage of care. So if if I'm disabled physically or mentally and I go into a hospital with COVID-19, am I going, is my life going to be valued the same as somebody else's? And people are really worried about that. And apparently there was like a leaked government triage document that I never saw that people were really upset about. Yeah. I mean, it was they nice. have to make decisions in some way, right? They, they have to do. decide. But I and I think that's what people want to know. How? Like Yeah, I think they're saying like people like parents with kids g- are valued higher than people without kids for instance. Old like I think de- there's probably things like that. Yeah. But well, I don't know about that. I think it's well, I don't know. I didn't see this document. Mm-hmm. But I'm just trying to say that the fear is there that yeah, definitely. Because, yeah, I, and I think because the disabled community feels undervalued and misunderstood at the best of times, yeah. that this situation is going to exacerbate that. I mean, people make decisions like that all the time when, like, in terms of who gets transplants and who gets, you know, there, there's these decisions are always being made it's it's maybe more in our face right now because of how often Mm -hmm. it's happening maybe but no but in a regular like right now there's enough resources to treat everybody Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like we haven't had a ventilator shortage icu those kind of things or for any like before covid like Mm -hmm. you are valued in the healthcare system Right, like regardless of no, but who if you, you need, are. but if you need a kidney, you're not going to get a kidney if, y- if you fall under a certain category, yes. you're not going to get a kidney. Yeah, your life is not worth as much as a person like, but by some measure, right? Mm-hmm. There's some way they're measuring that, you, mm-hmm. but based on your health. But those are, I think those are transparent ways. Okay. I think you can know that this and is know hidden. where you are. Yeah. And this is more like, what are people going to do? Right. How are people going to value me? Right. What do, do people think that because I have disability X, Y, and Z that I don't have a high quality of life? Yeah. I feel like I do have a high quality of life, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so these are the conversations that, yeah, that's have been going on. And uh yeah, that was that was it. Uh-huh. And now I don't have anything else. I mean, I think yeah, just to t- the p- to me the most obvious thing they need to d- I think that comes out of that that can be done on a short term thing that helps everybody, I think if you think like infinite game kind of thinking yeah is get if if you think there's been contact in the home you should get people masks like you should get people n95 masks and gowns so that interactions can be 
like definitely once there's symptoms, absolutely you need masks. But I mean, I think what we're seeing is there's asymptomatic spread. Really, if you're a contact of someone who's been, who's positive for COVID, I think they should be getting, like that family should be wearing, mm-hmm. everyone in the family should be wearing masks. The person that's the contact should have, should be wearing the N90, I don't know. I don't know which way you put it on and who gets the N95 and who doesn't, but like try to spread, try to stop the spread within the family unit if, as much as possible. Don't just say that, well, probably everyone's going to get it in the family. Like that's just a silly way to do it because it's yeah. taking more resources, way more resources at the, at the end of the day. Yeah, it's true. And who, yeah, who even knows? The other thing is like kids like Kate need such specialized care. Yeah. There's only so many people in the world that know how to care properly for Caden. Yeah, yeah. And you don't yeah, you don't want the you don't want to take up so much resource in a hospital for someone like Caden when it could easily be dealt with at home if there was the proper equipment there. Mm-hmm. That's all it needs if we just Yeah, so I think anyways, we're going to try to buy our own stuff because this was it's a good little scare of how we would <laughs> try to isolate Caden. Because, I mean, we still have nurses coming in and out. So, I mean, it's... Yeah, we do. that They are going to be a vector. Uh, I mean, they probably... Yeah, prob- the cold he got was probably from one of the nurses. Like, it... There Could have been, I but... I mean, I just don't... Like, none of us have colds. Like, it just felt like it... And we've been isolated for two weeks it's very difficult to imagine it coming in from anyone him getting a cold from someone other than a nurse now but yeah all right speaking of nurse one will be here in one minute yeah so we'll just end with a joke i guess because gotta lighten the mood (laughs) okay so here's a conversation between me and amazon so Amazon says, your package will be delivered Wednesday. And then I say, when is that? <laughs> that's the joke. That's the whole joke. Yeah, it's true. It's hard to know what day Nobody it is. knows what day it is. It did feel like we a Friday today. We have this discussion every day. It felt like a Friday today to me. And then I said, wow, that was the end of a four-day week. And you said, it was a four-day yeah, week? Yeah, that didn't feel like a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like a 50 day week because Monday because we were sick because Caden was sick on Monday mm-hmm. so I was, was stressful and you, Monday and it was a holiday for you it was a holiday yeah yeah and grant deadlines two grant deadlines today anyways what day is it? it it's Friday we did it good we night did it. good night <laughs>